Welcome once again to A Pain in the Glass podcast. This is Bill Shearhart, National Coach with Curling Canada, coming to you once again from Sydney, British Columbia, on the ancestral land of the Wassenaar First Nation. A Pain in the Glass podcast is sponsored by Canada Curling Stone of Kamoka, Ontario. There are many things I love about curling clubs, and one of them are the old photographs of players who played this wonderful game not just many decades ago, but in some cases a century or more ago. I especially enjoy their attire and equipment. How did they play in a suit and tie? And about that kitchen broom, have you ever tried to sweep with one of those things? But one thing really puzzles me. How on earth did they ever get along without what is now standard issue for almost every curler? And of course, I'm referring to a stopwatch. Some curlers feel virtually naked without one. But with all due respect, I also wonder how many of you know how to use one effectively. And exactly what is it that is being timed? Well, let's take a closer look. You see, this episode is about time. So, there's some basic physics involved here. If a stone requires a short period of time to travel down the ice from release to stop and hopefully stop on the T-line, it requires a relatively significant amount of force out of the person's hand. As a result, it must be moving relatively quickly, and we describe the ice as slow. Conversely, if the stone consumes a longer period of time to traverse the same amount of frozen real estate, It requires less force out of the player's hand and is moving more slowly. Therefore, the ice is described as relatively fast or keen. We'll leave the reasons for this for another time. For now, besides the concept itself, the key to all of this is the adverb relatively. It means everything in the determination and assessment of weight or the velocity of the stone. For all the decades, the curlers in those photos, they used their good judgment to ascertain weight, and good judgment is still paramount. A chronometer, I've always wanted to use that word, would have made life somewhat easier. It provides the empirical evidence that either supports or questions the brusher's judgment. So before we launch into an examination of the various timing systems, let's make some points regarding any timing system. And the first is, a timing system is only as good as the person doing the timing. So there's some timing 101 suggestions here. And the first is this, hold the watch in your hand so that the bony portion between the first and second finger pads of the index finger are on the stop-start button. And when you're purchasing a stopwatch for the purpose of timing rocks, Please purchase a stopwatch with a raised stop-start button. And actually, the smaller it is, the better it is. Most people, unfortunately, use their thumb. And the problem, compared to the other fingers, your thumb is just too fleshy and not accurate enough. Because by the time you start to push down and you you get through the fleshy part of the thumb to apply pressure to the stop-start button you have lost some time in doing so. And of course, like anything else, practice will make you a better timer. 
The validity of the data has a positive correlation to the amount of data in the data bank. In other words, time as many rocks as possible, those that belong to your team and those that belong to the opponent. And thirdly, times become more reliable as the ice becomes more consistent. So times that you get in the first few ends, well, yeah, they're okay, but really we're timing to see if the ice is changing in terms of whether it's slow or fast. And so as you get into the game, and again, we'll assume, say, a 10-end game, when you get to, you know, ends three, four, five, the ice should, by that point, be more consistent, and therefore, the time that you are getting is going to be more consistent and more valid. And the last point here, stopwatch times are just a guide. And I want to repeat that. Stopwatch times are just a guide. Your own good judgment should be trusted before any time on a stone. There, from a very practical perspective, I strongly urge teams that are new to timing is that one of the front end players should be the timer, the other should be the judger. So one does the timing, the other does the judging. So let's have a look at some of the systems. So in the early days of stone timing, stones were timed from the delivery hog line to the T line. When the leading edge of the stone reached the hog line, the watch was started, and when the stone came to rest, the watch was stopped. And even though a stone might be some distance from you, if you're not sure when it stops moving, just watch the handle. Because when a positively rotating stone handle stops rotating, the stone stops moving. And usually the degree of accuracy for this type of timing system is to the nearest whole second. The speed of stones on ice that was average in speed would have rendered a time of about 23 seconds. If the ice keened up, the timers would perhaps notice that the time had changed to 24 or even 25 seconds or more. If, on the other hand, the pebble started to flatten out and the ice slowed down, the watch would report the change as 22 or 21 seconds. In many parts of Western Canada, curlers used a, a variation of this system. They timed the stone from hog line to hog line. If you watch curling on television, and of course who doesn't, you will see on occasion the hog-to-hog -hog time displayed on the screen. So average ice under this hog-to-hog -hog system is usually around the 13 or 14 second range. And again, if the time from hog line to hog line increases, the ice is keener. And on the other hand, if it moves in the other direction, it is getting slow or flattening out. I believe the adherence to the hog line hog line system feel that it provides a somewhat truer reading since the stone is traveling relatively free at this point, not under the control of the curler who, heaven forbid, might do some funny things to the stone at the release. Now, who would do such a thing? But a new system came online, so to speak, uh, a number of years ago. And this timing system was called interval or split timing because a 
very small portion of the total path of the rock was being timed. I played competitively in the 1970s and 1980s. I was blessed with playing with the same front-end partner during that whole time period. His name was Bob Service. I just enjoyed so much playing with with Bob. And we were sweeping, and and we were pretty good sweepers. The problem was, uh, even though we were pretty good sweepers, uh, our judgment wasn't as good as our ability to sweep. And there were so many times when our skip, at that time we played for Bruce Monroe out of London, Ontario, and poor Bruce might have perfect T-line weight, but because our judgment was some th- sometimes lacking, we took that T-line rock right to the back 12-foot, or in some cases, right out of the house. Of course, uh, Bruce was thrilled with that, but uh, I can report he was the, the nicest person. He, he, he just gave us a nod and said, oh, we'll do better next time. So thank you, Bruce, for being so patient with us. <clears throat> now, we played on the Ontario Cash Circuit. And so we, we tested out this new system of timing rocks from the back line to the hog line. We tried all sorts of different, uh, you know, when we should start timing. And we just felt from the back line to the hog line was, was the way to do it. And, and we, we just simply referred to it as, as interval timing. And, and Bobby and I just kept it between us. We didn't even tell, uh, our our third Dave Velenoff or, uh, or or the skip uh, really what we were doing if they wanted to get some times from us and whether the ice was keening up we would we would use the old system we would say oh it's you know it's twenty four seconds twenty five or whatever it happened so Bob, Bobby and I used the system for an entire season and as I said we kept it just between the two of us but during the next season my my front end partner and I again Bob Bob service we started to get some looks from uh, Dave our our third and and our our skip and they cuz we we would talk in terms of 3.40 seconds and 3.45 seconds and if still to them as there was it was relatively new but we we had two converts because one time Bruce came down to shoot and he said okay boys what's the speed of the ice here and of course we reverted to well Bruce we think it's you know 25 seconds and then he said no 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 in your system What's the time? And we said, "Oh, well, Bruce, it's it, it, we think it's, it's three point five zero seconds." And so, you know, if it was three point five zero seconds, this is how it works. So, uh, Bobby did the judgment, and I did the timing from backline to hogline. If if we were pretty sure it was three point five zero seconds for a rock to stop on the T line at the far end, if it was three point five five seconds, then we knew that we were going to have to do a little bit of brushing. If, on the other hand, when I stopped my watch, when the leading edge of the rock hit the hog line, it registered at, you know, 3.45 seconds, let's say, we knew, well, we were just in let's keep it clean mode because the stone was released uh, a little bit um, with a little bit more velocity than it should. So that's, that's how it worked. Bobby and I felt that once the ice was up to speed, as we called it, we could be accurate to five one-hundredths of a second. So in other words, there was a difference between 3.50 
and 3.55 or 3.45. And it certainly worked for us. And so we, we stuck with that system and we called it interval timing. As that season progressed and we started to share our system with other front ends, uh, it started to become more popular. Now, while this system was developed in Ontario, my friend André Furlon was developing the same system in La Belle Provence with one interesting difference. In André's system, instead of starting the watch from 0.00 seconds at the back line and counting up to whatever time it was going to be at the hog line, say 3.50 seconds, Andre had his athletes purchase a countdown stopwatch. I'm not even sure if you can buy those anymore. Maybe you can. When the shot was called, the timer would set the watch to the estimated time. So again, let's say 3.50 seconds. When the leading edge of the stone reached the, the back line, the timer started the watch, which then counted down towards... 0.00 seconds. At that point, there was an audible beep. And if the beep occurred before the leading edge of the stone reached the hog line, the timer knew that the stone might be light. Conversely, if the stone reached the hog line before the beep, the stone might be heavy. This way, the athlete did not have to look at the stopwatch. They just had to listen to the, the beep relative to the leading edge of the rock being before the hog line or after the hog line. And it was a really interesting system. And there were a few times when Andre and I found ourselves in the same location and we always chatted about our two systems. We have all been in the situation where we have some individual practice time and wish to practice draws. But, but the only sheet of ice available has been sitting all day and the frost would make that sheet more like a gravel road than a, a sheet of curling ice. So what, what could one learn by delivering draws, which you know had a vapor trail following it in order to get it to the other end? We see with interval timing and a friend with a stopwatch, you can practice your 3.3s or 3.4s, your 3.5s, uh, you know, right up to the you know 4.0. You know, and the point here is, who cared where the stones ended up? They might have only made it halfway down the sheet. Conversely, your club might have very quick ice, but your next competition is at a club where the ice is relatively slow, say 3.2 or even 3.1 seconds. Well, your shots in practice would probably end up at the, at the hack or near the backboards. But again, who cares? The bottom line is that with interval timing, and here's the key point, you can turn your ice at your club into anyone's ice. So for as valuable as interval or split timing was in-game, the unintended consequence was its value in practice. And again, I want to repeat, by using interval timing, we could turn our ice, and at that time we played out of the Westmount Golf and Country Club in Kitchener, and if we knew that we were going to another facility, uh, one that we had been before, and we knew the ice was either faster or slower than our ice at Westmount, we just adjusted our practice times in the week prior to that competition, wherever it happened to be. And so, you know, if we were going to a place where the ice was really keen and, and we knew that, you know, 3.7, 3.8 was, was T-line weight, well, that's what we practiced at Westmount. 
And on the other hand, if we were going to a place where the ice was slower, we would practice that time. We didn't care where the rocks stopped at Westmount. And so, again, that was a, a, an unintended, very positive consequence to interval timing. Now, just on a, a note here before I finish. In pre-game practice, as a coach, I like the players to do the, 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 the same thing uh, for at least part of the practice, and here's what I'm talking about, and that is to deliver draws and guess the interval time. There's a psychological component here. If the player is anywhere close to the time he or she estimated, the, con the confirmation is usually a hearty thumbs up. I want the player to have a very positive attitude going into the game. Now, of course, in this environment in which we find ourselves where we have to get involved with draws to the button, um, you know, again, the interval timing is, is, is very valuable to the, the two, and there's usually two on the team, one with a clockwise rotation, one with a counterclockwise rotation, and to be able to confirm that the ice is, you know, 3.8, 3.9, 4 seconds, or even, you know, 4.1 or 4.2. At last year's Senior World Championships with the men's team, and it was the Wade White team from Alberta, my job during the pregame was to position the brush for the draws to the button and to be able to use the interval times to convey, and it was it was usually the third in the skip, in this, in this case, Wade, Wade and, and Barry, who were going to be the draws to the button. And they, I, I tell you, they were so accurate. They weren't content just to touch the button. They wanted to cover the pin. And they knew by the time it was their time to draw to the, to the button, they knew exactly the interval time, the, the, the front end were, knew exactly what that interval time was. Their judgment was spot on, and uh, especially during the playoff portion of the competition, we always had last rock advantage, and that certainly helped us. There are usually two questions asked of me when I deal with timing systems. And they are these. And the first one is backline versus T-line. Now, you'll notice through this episode, the interval timing system that I employed with my friend Bob was backline to hogline. There are a lot of people who prefer T-line to hogline. And largely, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But I think there is a small difference that I always felt was somewhat impactful. It mitigates the human error in starting and stopping a stopwatch. If the time element is longer, in other words, in this case, if I'm timing from backline and I make a bit of a mistake, that mistake is spread out over a, a longer uh, time interval than if it's T-line to hog line. Now, some of you might be sitting there listening, oh, geez, Bill, give it a rest. I mean, come on. <laughs> Does it really make that much difference? Well, no, it probably doesn't. But, well, it's my podcast, and that's my answer. Now, the other question that I get asked is this. Okay, whether you're timing, you know, hog to hog, or you're using interval timing system, back line to hog line, or as I said, T line to hog line, when do you stop and start the watch? Uh, do you wait until you see the leading edge of the rock hit the line? Uh, or do you sort of anticipate the time that it takes to press that stop start button? 
And don't forget, we, when we started all this, I mentioned about holding the stopwatch. You do not use your thumb. That really helps. Put that button in the bony part of your index finger between the first and second ping, finger pads. Uh, or do, you, do, you, do you anticipate, you know, when the leading edge of the rock hits the line? Well, I kind of have a little bit of a chuckle inside, and I, I don't mean to be condescending. Well, I don't really care what system you use, whether you wait to see the leading edge hit the line or sort of anticipate it and uh, take into account the reaction time. doesn't matter what you do. Just do the same thing at the other end. So using backline to hogline, I usually wait until I see it hit the line. And as long as I do the same thing at the hog line, it should be accurate. And one more comment. I mentioned this earlier in the episode. The person who does not do the timing, the person who does the judging, should also do something else. And that is watch the release of the rock. Whether you're talking about timing systems or just the delivery of a curling rock, it's all about releases and a little bit of a tug on the handle or a bit of a push on the handle, which is not the usual way that the person on your team delivers a rock. You you have to take those things into account. For as accurate as I think interval timing is, your judgment should always come first. And I'll repeat that. Your judgment should always come first. And I can never talk about releases without remembering, and I'll assign this to the great wrench Ed Wernick when he said, if you have a million-dollar delivery and a two-cent release, you, my friend, have a two-cent delivery. There you go. There's uh, an episode about timing. And again, if you are interested in, in more about timing, my uh, email address is coachbill at hey.net. That's coachbill at hey.net. Before I leave you today, I want to make one other comment about timing. And it's about the way we time uh, recreational games in various curling facilities. And I know that through the course of the day, the club manager and the ice technician have to keep things on some sort of chronological order so that the ice can be prepared and leaves can start on time. And frequently with recreational curlers, uh, there may be two hours set aside for the completion of a game, but for whatever reason, and there's usually a grocery list of those reasons, there isn't enough time to get a full eight ends in. And so most curling facilities use some sort of a system to indicate as the games approach their conclusion that um, the, uh, the, the games may not be able to finish the full eight ends, for example. And, and most frequently, it's some sort of audio signal. And I'm, I'm going to share a personal bias here. I absolutely hate the sound of a buzzer. So I hope I'm not offending any curling facilities out there that use a buzzer system, but I just hate the sound of a buzzer. Uh, because most of the time they're on some sort of an automatic system. And so the automated system would have no idea that somebody is in the process of actually delivering a curling rock and that buzzer sounds. Uh, although in some curling facilities, someone is charged with the responsibility. But I think in most cases, it's an automated system. 
But there is a solution, and I saw this solution at a curling facility just outside Montreal. And to be quite honest, I can't remember the name of the curling facility, but it was at a, a wonderful golf course. And the system that they used was, I looked at it and I thought, oh, bang, this is exactly what every curling facility should do. And here's how it works. When the penultimate end is concluded, so we'll say in this case, because it was an eight-end game, we're talking about the seventh end. So as soon as the seventh end is concluded, the thirds have agreed on the score, you look at the clock. And if there is... 15 minutes or more remaining on the clock in your allotted time, you finish the game with the full eighth end. But if it is less than 15 minutes, but but 10 or more minutes remaining, then everybody on each team delivers one rock. In other words, you play half an end. If, on the other hand, you look up at the clock and there is less than 10 minutes remaining, then that's the signal to push all 16 rocks back to the home end of the facility. So again, penultimate end concludes, 15 minutes or more, you play the last end, less than 15, but 10 or more, you play half an end, everyone delivering one rock. If it's less than 10 minutes, the rocks are return to the home end. No annoying buzzers. It works beautifully. I talked to one of the members when I was there that weekend, and I asked them, you know, if it, if it works. And they said, oh, it took us no time whatsoever to get used to it. And the, the, of course, the, the interesting comment that the person made, why doesn't every club do this? And so I'm passing the message along. I'm encouraging every club to use that system. In the next episode, I'm going to talk about using laser speed traps with timing. I won't do that in this episode. It will be a separate episode. So hopefully you will look for that. So until next time, which should be in one week, good curling, everyone. I hope that uh, your games after the holiday season are going well with you. And of course... As I say, please think only those happy thoughts.